From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold wants a second term. In her first, she oversaw elections through the COVID-19 pandemic and a pandemic of misinformation. We are living in a really fraught political atmosphere, largely because the former president of the United States tried to steal the presidency. And the attacks on the right to vote have intensified. We'll ask about a taxpayer-funded TV spot she was in and postcards sent to non-citizens. No one was mistakenly sent a ballot. The postcards all say that you have to be a U.S. citizen to register to vote. We have redundancy after redundancy after redundancy to make sure that only eligible people are registered. It's illegal to register or cast a ballot if one is ineligible to do so. Thank you for your generous gift during the recent fund drive. Member support is essential, but it's never required. Which is why it's always thrilling and humbling when listeners choose to donate. Because of you, Colorado Public Radio can continue to do its best work delivering the kind of news and music programming our community relies on. You truly make a difference, and we are so grateful. Thank you. Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. She doesn't hold an office in Washington, D.C. or sit in the governor's chair, but you could argue that one of Colorado's best-known political figures is Jenna Griswold. As Secretary of State, the Democrat has been a persistent voice on issues ranging from ballot access to a woman's right to choose. Right now, her focus is on re-election. Yesterday, we heard from her Republican opponent, Pam Anderson, now the incumbent. Griswold spoke with Ryan Warner. Secretary, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, being Secretary of State is now plainly a dangerous job. You have received threats. So, by the way, have many local clerks. Why do you want the job for another four years? Well, I'm running for re-election because I think there's more work to do to expand access to voting in the state of Colorado and to protect the right to vote in our elections. Over the last four years, I'm so proud of what we accomplished. We are number two in the nation for turnout uh, as of the 2020 general election. Until we're number one, there's just more work to do. Let's talk about access in particular. Sure. What do you think is an obstacle at this point to access in a state that already affords a lot of it? Well, in my first year, we started to increase drop boxes. We increased in-person voting locations. We passed parolee reenfranchisement, guaranteed access on every public university and on tribal lands. But like I mentioned, there's more work to do. Some of the things we're exploring is expanding automatic voter registration even further. That's a program that has registered over 350,000 eligible Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliateds and makes our elections more secure. Uh, folks may recognize that uh, best in driver's license, correct? So, yes, it, it happens when folks visit uh, driver's license office, and it's been a great program. Uh, it was launched in the middle of the pandemic and allowed registration rates to really keep up and, and stay high even during shutdown. Where else would you want automatic voter registration? 
Well, I think government should meet people where they are. People shouldn't have to go to multiple government agencies to register to vote or, or anything like that. So we're exploring expanding it to where Medicaid is offered. And another thing that I, I think is really interesting is continuing to listen to and partner with the tribes in Colorado. Uh, you know, the Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute are the two recognized tribes here. That's right. So Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute, um, you know, the right to vote for Native Americans living on tribal lands was not recognized until 1970. And so although Colorado, uh, we are number two in turnout in the country, we're always number one or two for the percentage of eligible people registered to vote, those numbers have been historically much lower on tribal lands. Uh, Through our partnership over the last four years, we have seen an approximate 20 percent increase in Native voting for folks living on tribal lands. But there's more work to do there, too. While candidates for secretary of state make known their political affiliation, there are those who'd argue that the office should be decidedly apolitical. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, Are you trying perhaps to redefine or expand that role? The Colorado Constitution has the secretary of state as an elected position. Uh, And I fully agree with that. I think a secretary of state should be accountable to Colorado voters. And to be clear, there are two big lie secretary of states in the nation right now. They're both appointed uh, in Texas and Florida. You you Uh, call them big lie secretaries of state. Election denier secretaries Uh of state. Um, And we are seeing candidates across this nation who are election deniers run to oversee America's elections. So I think it's important that voters uh, get to choose, that folks are accountable. But I I do want to push back a little bit on the premise. There are some who would say standing up vocally to protect the right to vote is partisan. That is not partisan. That's my job. Uh, My job as Secretary of State is to protect the right to vote and our fundamental freedoms. And every elected official, when they're seeing attacks to fundamental freedoms, should be doing the same. That's not partisan. That's American. But, you know, there are other issues you stand up for. In July, you sent a fundraising email asking people to chip in 25 bucks, and the subject was abortion. I'll just quote the email. I want to make it known where I stand when it comes to protecting the citizens of Colorado in a post-Roe America. Why should a secretary of state who needs to earn the trust, you you know, let's say of someone who is anti-abortion, why should a secretary of state be visible on that issue? Well, I would say uh, the right to abortion access, the right to reproductive health care is a fundamental right, just like marriage equality, just like a lot of the rights that Americans should have access to. And as one of the very few statewide elected women, one of the few women ever to serve in an office like this, I will always stand up for women, families, and little kids. I think it's egregious what's happening to women in this country. Uh, And I I think more folks should make it clear where they are. Uh, At times, my opponent wants to attack me on being pro-choice. She's making her positions known, too. And I've already overseen a statewide ballot question that had an abortion ban on it. Uh, In that election was free and fair, just like any other election. People have opinions. It's more important to be transparent with opinions. Uh, And again, I will always stand up for fundamental freedoms. I will always stand up to protect the right to vote of every Democrat, Republican, and unaffiliated. And I will always stand up for little kids, for families, and women. So you think the transparency of your beliefs is important in this role and in this race? Do step into the shoes of an anti-abortion voter in Colorado. You mentioned overseeing an election in which there was an abortion question on the ballot. But say more to someone who thinks, gosh, that kind of erodes my trust in in this 
office that, you know, has to run nonpartisan elections? Well, the office does run nonpartisan elections, and I think you can just look at my record, whether it's intervening in Mesa County and Elbert County for security breaches caused by Republican county clerks, to intervening in both Alamosa and Pueblo County for issues caused by Democratic county clerks. My record speaks for itself. Your office recently mailed voter registration notices to about 30,000 Coloradans who are not U.S. citizens. I'll say those postcards did make it clear that you must be a citizen to vote. Your office first alerted the press to this error. And I want to get a few things on the record at a a very fraught time. Uh, For instance, former President Trump has shared this story. Uh, Jenna Griswold, was this in any way intentional? No. It has been widely reported that a similar incident happened in 2020, also just prior to an election. Critics say that's a highly improbable coincidence, or at least that last week's incident means you didn't learn from that mistake in 2020. What would you say to that? Well, I would say in 2020, over 700,000 mailings went out and a handful went to incorrect recipients. Uh, The mailings always say the qualifications to register to vote in the state of Colorado. Someone has to be a U.S. citizen. They have to be in the state 22 days before Election Day and 18 by Election Day. Um, And of course, they have to be alive and able to vote, things like that. And I would say, you know, this year uh, there was a data error in the process and the office is required to send out these mailings. I think the bigger thing is that we are living in a really fraught political atmosphere, largely because the former president of the United States tried to steal the presidency. And the attacks on the right to vote leading up to that have not stopped. They've intensified. I would also say that my opponent, Pam Anderson, mistakenly sent out a postcard to 22,000 people when she was county clerk. Data glitches can happen. It doesn't mean that the system isn't working. In fact, the system is working. No one with a non-citizen's driver's license is going to be able to register to vote. Uh, We're sending out another mailer telling folks, again, just like the first mailer said, you have to be a U.S. citizen to cast a ballot. No one from that mailing list has attempted to register to vote who is ineligible to do so. That's something you're monitoring specifically? Every single day. Every single day. So our elections are are safe and secure. Our communications are very clear. Our system is set up to block uh, anybody with an, a non-citizen ID from registering. And is that that's true online? Is it is it true in person as well? If someone tried to. Have- register in person? So in person, you would have to either give a social security number or a driver's license. And if you try to give a non-citizen's driver's license, of of course, you will be blocked. Uh, If you try to register without one of those, you will be marked as ID deficient, which means you will have to provide proof of ID later on. So our system has protocol after protocol after protocol after protocol. Uh, And I, I think it's important to focus on that the system works a data glitch happens. We were very transparent and responded to it immediately. The Colorado election model is one of the best in the country. Uh, and I just, I think it's it's a shame to see things spin very quickly into misinformation. That's a pattern you've seen in this role. Oh, together. absolutely. Does the word glitch um, remove your responsibility no, I don't think so. Um, I, I think it it was uh, basically a, a coding error. 
that wasn't caught. Uh, we've took responsibility right away and acted very transparently, alerting folks. Uh, we took extra steps to make sure that a second postcard, uh, which says um, that the same as the first postcard, that only U.S. citizens can uh, register to vote. So, no. Isn't the difference between the first and the second postcard that the first one had your name on it and the second one doesn't? That's been pointed out. Well, I think what's important is that the postcards clearly say that they're official mail and they clearly say that only U.S. citizens can register to vote. Why isn't your name on the second one? I'm just curious. Uh, you know, different different designs. But I, I think what is important is the actual issue. These registration alerts are not ballots. No one was mistakenly sent a ballot. The postcards all say that you have to be a U.S. citizen to register to vote. We have redundancy after redundancy after redundancy to make sure that only eligible people are registered. It's illegal to register or cast a ballot if one is ineligible to do so. And if we ever catch anything like that, it's referred to prosecution. Our system is safe and secure. Uh, and as Secretary of State, I've added layers of, of security, but also have guided the office and Colorado elections and democracy through the worst attack on voting rights and the worst election disinformation atmosphere in recent times. And I think with great success, we are seeing Coloradans continue to overwhelmingly use vote by mail for all, even uh, after years and years of lies coming even from the highest office in the land. Uh, and I'm just so glad that Coloradans, Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliateds make their voices heard in our elections. Do you like voter ID laws as they are now in Colorado? Do you think they're, they hit the right note? I support voter ID, and I think our current law works really well. You have said in national media appearances that Americans could lose the right to vote if Republican candidates win some elections this fall. And your critics label that election misinformation. I mean, especially given that your opponent in this race does not deny the results of the 2020 election opposes the idea of trying to overthrow it, and has said that she has great faith in Colorado's system. Jenna Griswold, are you in a strange position in Colorado of kind of running against national Republicans, but in a state where the Republican candidate uh, does not espouse those big lies? Uh, no, I don't think it's a, a strange position to be able to talk about uh, your opponent in a race, but also what's happening across the country. To be very clear, I've never called my opponent an election denier. She and I both agree that Joe Biden was duly elected and that Colorado's elections are safe and secure. At the same time, there are candidates running across this nation for secretary of state who are big lie candidates. Uh, they do not believe in free and fair elections and are running to oversee them. Uh, the nation should be concerned about that and is. Democracy is one of the top issues on voters' minds. And go Polls have borne that out. Yeah, yep, yep, that's right. And going into this election cycle, over 60 percent of American voters have an election denier on their ballot. We are at a turning point. Since the story of these postcards has gone viral, and as I said, shared by the former president, are you seeing an uptick in threats against you? Yes, uh, we've seen a massive uptick of threats. But again, I, I won't be intimidated from doing my job. And my job is to protect the right to vote of every eligible Democrat, Republican, and unaffiliated, and protect our election infrastructure. 
It also, by the way, there's more things the Secretary of State does. Um, I oversee the business registry. I've been working on saving Coloradans money and making it as easy as possible to open a business. Uh, And just this year, we slashed the cost of opening a new business down to $1 and set up a process to help small businesses who are the victims of identity theft. Uh, there's also lotteries and raffles. It's, it's a bingo, bingo, campaign right. finance, whole lobbying, when, oversight. When threats come in, just yeah. back to that point yeah. briefly, um, how do they come in and what yeah. do they sound like without giving them too much credence? Yeah, well, um, the threats come in all different types of ways. Emails and calls to my office, calls to my personal phone, DMs directed to my personal accounts, posts on social media, letters, uh, any way that you can communicate with a person. We are seeing threats. Do you ever engage with them or is it an immediate pass off to law enforcement? Oh, it's an immediate pass off. Uh Uh, And just on Friday, um, a a person was sentenced to 18 months in prison for threatening my life. And and to be very clear, this is not about me as an individual. It does feel really concerning when you're in the middle of a national QAnon conspiracy uh, and you see where these threats can go. The disinformation led to the insurrection. It led to loss of life of police officers uh, protecting the Capitol. So you have to take them really seriously. But taking a step back, threats to secretaries of state predominantly, to tell you the truth, have been to younger women. But threats to secretaries of state and election workers uh, is a, a tool to try to intimidate us to stop doing the work of protecting democracy. I won't stop. Uh, I'm going to continue to protect the right to vote. uh, And we're just going to be really smart at it. And that's why I'm so grateful that uh, State Patrol uh, really investigates the threats and, and takes them seriously. That's Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. She's a Democrat seeking a second term. Yesterday, Ryan spoke with her Republican opponent, Pam Anderson. Still to come, why Griswold says she stands by a TV spot she appeared in that was funded by taxpayer dollars. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado voters have lots of decisions to make this November. Who will head the state as governor? Who will represent us in the U.S. House and Senate? And the ballot also has questions on everything from psychedelics to school lunches. Follow CPR's in-depth election coverage from our public affairs team, stories and conversations from around the state and from Washington, D.C. Listen every day to CPR News, and for even more coverage, come to CPR.org. It's not just governor and senator. This election, Colorado voters will also decide who will be the secretary of state, a job that includes overseeing elections and business filings. Yesterday, we heard from Republican candidate Pam Anderson. Today, the Democratic incumbent Jenna Griswold talked with my co-host, Ryan Warner. Your opponent says that your office received over $6 million in federal money during COVID. But rather than using the full amount for county clerks and Colorado citizens, more than a million was used to make a commercial with former Secretary of State Wayne Williams, a Republican. One thing we both know is that Colorado's elections are safe and secure. That's right, Wayne. But voters should be alert to election disinformation. Election disinformation is designed to look real, so always use trusted sources. Williams is running for mayor of Colorado Springs. That's not this cycle, but uh, you are running this cycle for secretary of state. The message of the ad aside, it was about having confidence in Colorado's system. Is it icky? For two active candidates to use federal relief dollars for an ad that features them. 
We are in one of the worst uh, attacks on the right to vote in recent times. Uh, And the misinformation, the election denialism has real effects in Colorado. It has led to two security breaches, one in Mesa County and one in Elbert County, where the county clerks breached their own security protocols trying to prove the big lie. It has led to the Chafee County clerk working behind bulletproof glass. It has led to me requiring security. It has led to election deniers chattering right now in the state of Colorado about firebombing drop boxes. The big lie has real effects on how election administration works. And experts say the best way to combat election disinformation is to alert people that it's happening. The Secretary of State is one of the most trusted sources on election information. And I think a bipartisan PSA reassuring Coloradans that our elections are safe and secure, alerting them to disinformation, and allowing them to know how to get trusted information is exactly what we should be doing. I'm glad that my predecessor, literally the person I ran against in 2018, thought that this was so important he was willing to join me. And remember, we only put this on TV after it was clear that we were uh, very likely going into the first statewide recount in 20 years based on conspiracies. Uh, In terms of what my opponent is saying, this is not an either-or choice for the federal funding. Uh, We have actually, for those federal funds, appropriated or uh, used, uh, planned to use about 90% on projects that county clerks want. We have funded almost every request from a county clerk that is eligible to be funded from this money. We can do both. And remember, these federal funds are intended to secure our elections. One of the things we need to do to secure our elections is push back on massive disinformation that is used to cause election threats. And I think in a bipartisan way, that's exactly what we should be doing. Why not put someone else as the face on it? Like you could have put your elections director or something, you know, the full faith and credit of your office (laughs) without the candidate on screen. The Secretary of State is one of the most trusted sources. That's what experts that study this uh, across the nation. But the act itself has undermined trust. I mean, that's the interesting catch-22 here. Well, I'm, again, not so sure that that is accurate. Um, My opponent has decided to go run a really negative campaign. And instead of embracing that two people who literally ran against each other are willing to reassure Coloradans that our elections are safe and secure and to be aware of election disinformation, uh, has decided to use this as a, a political attack. That does not mean that the bipartisan PSA was not effective. Uh, And in fact, the actual feedback we get from Coloradans is overwhelmingly in support and and a thank you for running these PSAs. And again, I I would say the fact that we're able to appear together and are some of the best sources, trusted sources on election information for the state of Colorado, I think is commendable and is something that we should be doing across the nation. More Republicans should be willing to stand up And tell folks elections are safe and secure, just like Secretary Williams did. We spoke with Chuck Rohrman. So he's the clerk in El Paso County. He is one of the Republicans that you're talking about there who has stood up to the notion of election fraud. He was recently honored with the Defender of Democracy Award by the State County Clerks Association. We asked him if he would pose a question to the Secretary of State candidates I'll point out he's a Republican, but he's not endorsing in the race. What would you implement to assist county clerks 
in their role. They have a very difficult one. They wear many hats between recording deeds of trust, performing marriage ceremonies, motor vehicle transactions, and doing the agenda for the county commissioners. What things will you implement to better support clerk and recorders? And would you be willing to assist clerk and recorders in getting a fair amount of reimbursement for the cost of elections? Elections are very expensive, but we only get a measly 80 cents per voter, and it costs us about five or six times that to run an election per voter. What's your response to Chuck? Yeah. Uh, and I think Clark Broerman has um, really been at some of the center of this election denialism. When we went into that first statewide recount after the, the primary, when Tina Peters, a candidate for secretary of state, refused to accept the results, a lot of the focus of the angst was in El Paso County. Uh, my staff was there uh, assisting the clerk um, and, and making sure that they had the support that they needed. So I think he did a really good job through that whole ordeal. Um, and I would say a couple things. First and foremost, we have added more support to the office for county clerks. This is a, a different type of job now. Uh, I don't think any secretary of state has had to oversee elections during a global pandemic and with one of the worst attacks on voting rights in recent times. Uh, and it, of course, uh, is more trying for the people in the secretary of state's office and all the county election officers. So we want to be there to have support. Uh, and you're, sure you're saying this is a more dangerous job now. It's you face threats, you face a constant onslaught of lawsuits of it's just uh, it's a lot And the county clerks overwhelmingly do a great job. We have, we've heard earlier this week in our series on election transparency that that clerks are being bombarded yeah. with paperwork requests. Our office, almost, too. Yeah, like a denial of service attack, but yeah. with kind of public records yeah. requests. Yes. part. So I, I think you can think about the attempts to destabilize uh, American elections as, number one, try to suppress the right to vote. That's what we're seeing across the nation. We've stopped at all attempts here. Number two, destabilize the elections themselves, insider threats, threaten clerks, try to get election deniers into these posts. Number three, erode confidence of Americans in that Americans' elections are, are free and fair. Number four is gum up government. So we have been seeing a lot like record request after record request. Um, I, I believe my office uh, got from one person 60 requests in one day. Lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. We are winning every single one of those lawsuits. Uh, and just out of uh, the, the uh, recount, we had to defend and won, I, I believe, six lawsuits and appeals, right? Um, so, yes, there, there's just more work at this point. But to answer your question, um, we're adding more support to the counties. Um, I'm also working with the county clerks and the clerks association to tighten our laws. Just this year, we partnered together to make it a crime to dox or retaliate against an election worker. Doxing is the idea of potentially going online, for instance, and publishing private information or, or uh, sensitive information, an address or a phone number or something. Yeah. yeah, in an attempt to retaliate them or try to intimidate them. So that's now a crime in the state of Colorado. 
we just passed, I, I was happy to lead in the Clerks Association supported, the first law in the nation on insider threats. It is now a felony to compromise voting equipment. It's a felony to allow unauthorized access. Uh, it's a felony to post sensitive passwords to election equipment online. We also protected whistleblowers. And uh, in that legislation, were able to get a million dollars of funding for the counties to upgrade their physical security. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Democrat Jenna Griswold is running for a second term as Colorado's Secretary of State. Ryan's conversation with her opponent, Republican Pam Anderson, and full transcripts of both interviews are available at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The vast majority of teachers in Colorado are white, while 45% of students are students of color. Research shows they need to see teachers who look like them. When I walk in the hallways of schools that I support, those kids, when they see me and I look like them, they run to me. Colorado now has a plan to recruit and retain more teachers of color. Read all about it at CPR.org and in the Colorado Public Radio app. The Cape Doctor is a book that explores issues of female identity and the lengths to which women have gone to live on their own terms. It's inspired by the real life of a 19th century doctor, James Miranda Berry. A young girl from Cork, Ireland, reinvents herself as a boy so that she can attend medical school. After experiencing all the freedom of the era as a man, she continues to live that way and becomes a successful physician. She's later accused of homosexuality, which puts her life in jeopardy. Author E.J. Levy won the 2022 Colorado Book Award for Best Historical Fiction. She spoke with CPR's arts and culture reporter, Eden Lane. I want to begin by saying how much I enjoyed The Cape Doctor. And I think the way to begin, although if I'm going to quote your book, I should begin the story at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) And continue to the end. So we'll begin by saying, what is historical fiction? How do you define historical fiction? Oh, it's what a wonderful question. I will quote the Boulder-based Megan O'Grady. She is a wonderful cultural critic on this question. She says, and I quote, historical fiction arises out of the belief that it is possible to tell stories about a vanishing past that bear on the immediate present, forged at the place where the archives end and the author's imagination begins. Where the archives end and the imagination begins. Oh, wow. And she further says, if I might, that historical fiction is born of a desire to hit the pause button, to quote, awaken the dead and make whole what has been smashed, unquote. And she's quoting uh, Walter Benjamin Mm -hmm. there. So I can't say it any better than that. I think that's lovely. And it really is evocative of what historical fiction is to me as a reader. Mm. So I love that, the way she captures that. And might I say, I love that you quoted that line, let's start at the beginning and continue to the end, because that is where possible in this work uh, that is inspired by the life of Dr. James Barry, I've quoted Barry himself or themselves. And that line is taken directly from his writing. Wow. So good on you. When I was a boy, I was told that when I began a story, to begin at the beginning and continue to the end. So I shall. 
The question, of course, is where it all began. Where does any story start? Where did mine? The ending, alas, is always all too clear. How did you find that? Because I I recall that there weren't many letters from Dr. Barry. There weren't. There were very few from Margaret Ann Bulkley, who was born around 1790. And there are very few personal letters from Dr. Barry. So mostly we have a voluminous record of their um, work as a physician, but very little of a personal nature, which is why there's a kind of ongoing debate about their intimate life. And that's, you know, great fodder as a novelist. That's Mm -hmm. what we want. Are the gaps. That's what we get to write into, into that silence. So this piece is based on the life or inspired in the life of Dr. James Miranda Berry, but it's not James Miranda Berry in the book. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Yes. So you talked about the fodder, about defining Dr. Berry's life, and you ran into that before your book was even published. Yes. Two years before the book was published, there was a mischaracterization, or one might say a misunderstanding, about my novel when its sale to Little Brown was announced in February of 2019. Mm-hmm. And it took on a life of its own, as things do on Twitter, but that was two years before the book was published. No one had read the book except my agent, my editor, my best friend, and my mom and me. <laughs> so it was a, a Twitter storm not about the book, no, but about an anxiety about an imagined book. And it's a story inspired. It's historical fiction. Thank you. I think that's the danger when people react to art that they have not yet themselves experienced. Thank you. Yes. And I wonder how you as a writer were able to navigate that environment when, of course, most of us would want to stand up and shout, no, 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 that's not what this is. <laughs> Please don't judge my work before you can see it. <laughs> Thank you. I complained a lot to my dearest friend, or really, rather than complained, I was a little terrified. I think that the mob mentality that can arise on social media can be really frightening, even when it is well-intentioned, even when we might agree with the the goals, the aims. Mm -hmm. I think that we are not as a species at our best when we mob, when we are like crows. When we're like crows. But but that said, the book didn't change as a result of this. And I appreciate that my editorial team stood by me. I did, however, change um, the names of some of the principal characters simply to underscore that this is fiction. Mm-hmm. So in my novel, Dr. James Miranda Berry becomes Jonathan Perry. Lord Somerset becomes Lord Somerton. There are a few changes like that among principal characters, but Margaret Ann Bulkley becomes Margaret Breckley. So there's a slight change there. I wanted to retain Margaret's name because I think hers is a name that should ring through history. She died so I might live. Margaret. I owe her my life. Not a day goes by when I don't think of it, of her, as not a day goes by when I don't think of him. She died so I might live, but isn't that the lot of women? To sacrifice, as our Lord was said to have done. Few speak of Mary's sacrifice, of course. That, we are to assume, was unexceptional. 
To martyr oneself for others is the expected lot of mothers and daughters. It's rarer in sons except in war. So naturally, given the choice, I chose to be a son. Given the choice, who would not? This story began as you hearing the character's voice in your head on a visit to Cape Town. That is correct. As you say, um, the opening lines of the book came to me verbatim when I first read about uh, Dr. James Berry on a flight to Cape Town. I was accompanying my then partner to Cape Town for a conference and read two lines in a guidebook about this remarkable 19th century army surgeon who had been a dandy and a duelist and so brilliant that Napoleon himself called for him from his deathbed and who performed the first successful caesarean recorded in Africa, who was caught in a sodomy scandal with the governor of Cape Town, the aristocratic governor of Cape Town, rose to the level of inspector general for military hospitals, only to be discovered after death in 1865 to have been, according to the layer out, a perfect female who'd carried a child, who showed evidence of having carried a child. So that was the moment when I was captivated. Mm. And as I toured around Cape Town, I just felt a little ensorcelled, really kind of under a spell and took notes on what I thought Dr. Barry might have thought of plants, of the prison, of hospitals, of the castle where soldiers were housed. And when I returned home, I ordered the one biography that I knew of by Rachel Holmes, mm-hmm. which had come out in the States around 2000, and found that many of my imaginings proved to be quite eerily accurate. And so I felt, you know, emboldened to follow the spell I felt I was under. That spell and that exploration really manifests itself in the detail and the vivid sense of moment and place. Thank you. Can you talk to me about how you conjured that up? Because, you know, we're familiar with this time period in London, but we aren't that familiar with Cape Town as a casual reader. (laughs) Well, I should say it was at the time the Cape Colony and had recently been taken over by the British. So in terms of the writing of the story of Barry or Perry in my book and Margaret Ann Bulkley, that wrote itself pretty easily. But what was difficult, as I got further into it, I realized how much my life is blinkered by my time and place, that it was hard to imagine a world before germ theory, before Freud, pre-World Wars, pre-Victorian. So the heavy lift, as the writer Daniel Torday has said as well, for me as for him in writing historical fiction was to immerse myself in the world of the 1810s and mm-hmm. 1820s. And so I read a lot of excellent secondary sources. There was primary research that I did in archives looking at original documents. There was secondary research reading two superb biographies of Dr. Barry. Can you name them for us? One is The Secret Life of Dr. James Berry. That's by Rachel Holmes. The second, I didn't read while I was writing, but I I read it after I was done and made some adjustments. And that is Dr. James Berry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time. 
That's interesting that you went back and made some adjustments. Were those adjustments technical information or were they tone or what kind of adjustments? That's a great question. Principally, it was regarding the scandal that arose. Mm. Their biography that came out in 2016 is the most detailed, the most complete, and very rigorous. And so they did the best job of giving an account of the sodomy scandal that arose that really cost Dr. Barry and Lord Somerset, nearly cost them their careers, nearly cost them their lives. Mm-hmm. It was mostly in terms of that political scandal that I made adjustments. But I also read biographies of Simone Bolivar, of Francisco de Miranda, of one of Dr. Barry's mentors in London. So I'd read a book to get a line. I'd read books about uh, Regency England. So secondary sources were really crucial in this too. And then I would say there was a third category of research, and that was narrative research, rereading books by Mary Wollstonecraft, by Mm -hmm. Jane Austen, by political theorists of the time, to get the tone to try to tune up my language. Well, it really paid off because it does feel of another time. It does feel detailed and and there's there's breath in it, if you know what I mean when I say that. Thank you. Yet you're still able to touch on all of the the key issues, education, gender and gender expression as it manifests itself then, medicine, voting rights, just regular daily concerns in life in the turn of the 19th century. Thank you so much. Talk to me about doing that because as a fiction, you're able to present your character as a first-person, unreliable narrator. Right, right. <laughs> uh, thank you. Be, uh, but you're, you're able to give us all of that information, yet make it so real life in terms of its tone. Oh, that's so kind of you. For me, it was a more dialectic process that I would conduct research, say, at the Mutter Library in Philadelphia, their wonderful medical research. Um, where I could read the books that Dr. Perry, Dr. Barry in life would have read and read letters by English colonial army surgeons elsewhere in the world to see how they responded to epidemics and crises. And so that helped you capture the feeling of the time and place of the people. That, that's right. I hope so. I would take a notes on things that captivated me, and then I would find myself annotating them. So if there was a single line about how what mattered most was the preservation of the life of the mother in pregnancy, I might pull that line out and then annotate around it. A scene might blossom in my head. So I tried to work back and forth between facts that kind of rung a bell in my head and the character's response to them. So maybe a better example is when I read about the accounts of those who after Barry's death said, Barry was an imperfectly formed man, Mm -hmm. or um, I always knew she was a woman. When I read those things, I noted them down, but at the same time, from them sprung a response in my character's voice in my head. I will be dead less than a month when the debates will begin over my body, partisans taking sides as if I were a bill in Parliament, a horse on which to wager. Dr Bradford, with whom I worked in the West Indies, 
will write in the Medical Times and Gazette to gallantly insist that I was a man through and through if devoid of all the outward signs of manly virility, while the Manchester Guardian will assert with equal certitude that I was a woman all along. There are those who will claim, erroneously, that my body bore evidence of multiple children, others that it was marked with a caesarean scar, still others that I had no sex at all, like an angel, or rather that I was in possession of both, a colossus straddling worlds. In a way, I suppose I was. There are those who insist I was intersex, hermaphrodite. They claim to have studied my case, speaking of me as if I were a patient to be cured, declaring with proprietary authority that I was an imperfectly developed man, a man in a female body. How else to explain my success? They debate my corpse as if it were a question, a riddle. Does it matter? Why can't we get over the body, give it a rest? We are measured by our works in the world, for better or for worse. The honour we do outlasts and outlives us, weighs in the scales of time far more heavily than do our bones. So why weight the body so? What matter if I were a woman or a man? Rather, ask what I did with my time. Ask only, did I reach? Did I go beyond what was easily within my grasp? Did I excel, triumph, amaze? Did I live up to my imagining? Is there any other measure? I think these are the questions that arose for me as I wrote about sex and gender and the labels we apply to others and ourselves and what such labels do and do not encompass about our humanness, the nature of identity, the price of ambition, mm -hmm. the power of education, what's in a name, how we forge a self and what makes us who we are, all these things arose naturally not self-consciously, I think, um, out of the story of this remarkable life, I think is speaks to our time powerfully, both mm -hmm. in terms of the medical work that Dr. Barry did, the attention to those at the medical margins, the social margins, and how that gets translated into unfair access to healthcare. Barry's life is such a, an an important one, as is Margaret Ann Bulkley's. And my hope is that the book may bring attention to this life, to this really remarkable life and legacy, this trailblazer. Trailblazer. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because similar characters, Anne Lister, Francis L. Clayton, mm -hmm. we might be more familiar with them than we would be with Dr. Barry. But your book is clearly changing that. <laughs> I hope. I hope, only because I think controversy, I mean... Well, we still love a scandal in we, today's I, society. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they, they were caught in many controversies in their life. And it seems to me, you know, and, and after their death, that there have been moments of resurgent interest. And then I think often controversy sort of buries it. It makes it a scandal of a moment rather than a life that we really study and seek to understand. I hope that's changing now. I think there are a lot of, a lot of people, feminists, people in the trans community, uh, historians, biographers of various sorts who are beginning to pay attention to Margaret Ann Oakley and Dr. James Miranda Berry. And I hope that my novel is a tiny addition to that, I hope. Author E.J. Levy won the 2022 Colorado Book Award for Best Historical Fiction for her book, 
the Cape Doctor. She spoke with CPR's arts and culture reporter, Eden Lane. You also heard clips from the audiobook narrated by Mary Jane Wells. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. Right now, it's pumpkin spice and fall harvest, but before you know it, you'll be seeing Christmas trees and menorahs, which is why we want to talk about the Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza in December. It's a big production that we record on a stage in front of an audience, and we just opened a contest to musical acts specifically from Southern Colorado. CPR's Dan Boyce, who's based in Colorado Springs, and Vicki Greger, longtime music director at KRCC, will help us review the entries. All right, first, so why Southern Colorado? Well, that's where Vicki and I work, and, and we wanted our part of the state represented in the extravaganza, right? That is right. And uh, so, Vicki, so for the purposes of this contest, we're going to make this simple. We're going to define Southern Colorado as south of the town of Castle Rock and east of the Continental Divide. So basically the southeast quadrant of the state. The winning act needs to be based somewhere in there. And Vicki, what kind of act are we looking for? Well, whatever, Dan. A solo performer, an ensemble. We're hoping to get as many entries as possible playing. We have an entry for him online where you will upload audio or video of the song you'd like to play for the holiday show, and you and I will pick the winner. Right, so you can either uh, celebrate us or we're the ones to blame uh, based on who ends up (laughs) on stage. And here's the deal with this. You do not need to be a professional musician for this. We really would love to see more entries than fewer ones. And we also ask that the song just be seasonal somehow for this December show. You can interpret that how you like, but that's the kind of stuff that we're looking for. Yeah, also, I mean, we welcome covers of holiday songs, but what we'd really prefer to hear are your original songs that celebrate or mark the season. Even better if it celebrates the season and how about Southern Colorado as well? Brilliant. Yeah, so please uh, reach out to any musicians you know in Southern Colorado you think might want to enter. Not only would that act get to perform in front of the live audience for the show, but the song will also be broadcast statewide on Colorado Matters. And we're telling you right now because this is when the contest is open, now until the end of October. That's right, a Halloween deadline for your Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, or other December holiday song. And you can find the entry form at krcc.org slash holiday contest. Yep, that's krcc.org slash holiday contest. Thanks so much, and we can't wait to hear your songs. That was Dan Boyce and Vicki Greger. Along with statewide exposure, we should note that this is also a paying gig. We'll put you up in a hotel near the venue, too. So happy holidays and get to entering or refer someone else to do so. And that's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to the entire team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. 
And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.